not so much trying to get to a place where we're healed all the time and we never have a bad day because then we don't appreciate it. Like we're here to experience contrast and the joy of remembering is kind of what life is all about. to another week of the podcast. You're listening to Let It Out. I'm your host, Katie Dalebout. If you're new, welcome. I've been at this for a while. I love hosting these conversations. And honestly, I say that I like the episode most weeks. Every week. And that's mostly true. However, I really loved this conversation It's maybe my favorite I've had definitely recently, maybe ever. I learned so much and I will probably listen to it again. I have on the podcast Tasha Blank. She's a DJ, artist, producer, speaker. She's devoted the last decade to studying neuroscience, psychology, creativity, and how to cultivate a deep understanding of the technologies of music and mind and movement and unlock our fullest potential. I really think she's cool. Her music catalyzes transformation, inspires collaboration, and weaves together cultural influences from around the world. She's just really cool. She's the founder of The Get Down, which we talk about in this episode. I haven't been yet, but I really want to go Maybe we could all get a group together and and go together to the next one. What do you guys say? She also has this online workshop where she teaches some of the concepts that we talk about. It's called Radical Movement. The link is in the show notes if you want to find out more about that. She's been featured everywhere from Vogue to Refinery29 and Vulture, and she's worked with Google and Microsoft and Yoga Journal. In this episode, like I said, I learned a lot. We talk about therapy, family, connections between food and sex, because they're both about appetite. It's really interesting what she has to say about that. We talk about creating spaces that can heal, expressing yourself, feeling your feelings, being in your body, sexual and creative energy, primal evolutionary drives, eating disorders. She had an eating disorder, and we talk all about that. We talk about dance, creativity, psychedelics. It's such a good conversation, you guys. And here's the thing. We had a practice round. (laughs) I went to Tasha's apartment at the beginning of the summer. I think it was early June. And it's so embarrassing, but I lost the recording. It didn't record. And... I was so crushed because I loved that conversation. I loved the experience of going upstate to where she lives and spending time with her. And I really enjoyed the conversation that we had, but it will end up always just being something that we had that I won't be able to share, unfortunately, with you, but I'm, I'm still happy that it happened. But what's really interesting is that 
when we recorded this, so much had changed for her. She talks about it a little bit, but in just those three months, because we recorded this in August, at the end of August, it ended up being the perfect time to have this conversation. And I think that's really cool. If I ever find that, I keep calling it in this episode, you'll hear, but the Lost Basement tape, if I find it, I promise I'll air it. And it was also fascinating. But I want to get to that conversation as quickly as possible. Quick announcement, if you're in New York City the day that this is coming out, I'm doing an event with Kelsey Patel. She's so cool. We met at the Good Fest and in the little speaker's room backstage, we were like, we should do some events. So if you're in New York City tonight, we are doing an event on the Upper East Side. The link is in the show notes. Please come. There's an amazing gift bag. She's going to be doing Reiki, meditation, yoga. I'm going to be talking about journaling for the fall equinox. It's going to be really cool. And then I'm going to D.C. on Friday. We're doing a little mini East Coast tour, Kelsey and I. So I'll be in D.C. on Friday doing a similar event there. So I'd love to see you in both places. That would be really cool. That's it. I hope you enjoy this episode and I'll talk to you at the end. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Organifi. I love Organifi. Their founder, Drew's from Michigan, just like me. I even had him on the podcast. And I think because Drew and his team are so nice and passionate about wellness and superfoods, I honestly think it makes the products taste better and work better. I love their green juice product. I think that's, I think that is maybe Drew's favorite product. I don't know, but that's what I would guess. I feel like that was like his heritage line, his first product, and it's just really good. It has 11 blended superfoods and it's a great way to upgrade your nutrition when you're traveling. It helps me to stay energized. It's full of vitamins and minerals and antioxidants, and it tastes really, really good. It's great. It's really practical, and I'm someone who loves to get a green juice as much as the next guy, but they're so expensive. They're like $10, and this is a really cost-effective way to have green juice because it ends up being about 2 to $3 per juice. I also really love their gold product. It's a turmeric product, so it's anti-inflammatory, And you know what? The thing I like most about it is that it tastes really good. I put it with coconut milk. It has cinnamon and ginger and lemon balm, and it's not sweet. It has a little bit of sweetness, but it's not high in sugar. And it has medicinal superfood mushrooms in it. And I just really like it. It helps me go to sleep at night, and sometimes I even put it in my yogurt. I just really like it. They even have a beet product. And I just love Organifi. It's spelled with an I, not a Y. So it's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And if you use the code Let It Out, that gives you 20% off your order. So again, that's Organifi with an I.com. And use the code Let It Out to get 20% off your order. If you've been listening for a while, you know I love Cara Vitamins. I've been using them for almost two years now, and they've been a supporter of the podcast for almost as long. They're a monthly subscription vitamin service that makes quality vitamins by using 
the best ingredients, they're effective, and they're personally tailored to your needs. You go to their website, you take a really quick, fun quiz that asks you questions about your health goals and your lifestyle and how much you're sleeping, and it takes about five minutes and it will help get you the specific vitamins that you might want to focus on because 90% of people fall short of the FDA's recommended guidelines of what vitamin or nutrient they need. And Care-of can help you with that. They're a great company. You can track your progress with the Care-of app and earn rewards when you remember to take your vitamins, which I think is really fun. They now have these delicious nutrient-packed quick stick powders that can be added to your monthly delivery. Check them out for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. Visit takecareof.com and enter the code Katie at checkout. Again, that's takecareof.com and enter the code Katie, K-A-T-I-E, that's my name, at checkout. Okay, so... Thank you for doing this again. Yeah. Full letting it out to everyone listening to the podcast. This is the second time we've done this. Oh, are we recording? Yeah. Great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is the second time we've done this, but if I find that one, it will be the Lost Basement Tapes. It's amazing. Because it was so good. Yeah. And I hope a lot of that content organically comes up here because we just had this magical conversation where I felt like I learned so much and I don't know it was just one of those conversations I left your beautiful apartment that day and I just felt like I had I don't know it just felt magical and lovely mm-hmm. and I don't know why because I don't even remember what we talked about <laughs> but it was nourishing so let's start at the beginning where did you grow up what did you want to be when you grew up what were you like as a kid mm-hmm. I love that question nobody asked that question and I grew up mostly in Bethesda, Maryland, with a few years in Minneapolis, and I was really, I wouldn't say I was a tomboy per se, but I was like, I was like kind of gritty. Like I had this long hair and I wore flannel and I like ran around and danced and climbed trees. I just was very physical. Like I've been very physical since forever. My parents tell stories about how I would climb on top of the dining table during dinner and or under it or whatever. I was always doing something with my body growing up. And I was privileged enough to grow up in very naturey areas and neighborhoods that were, even if they were just outside cities, there were just a lot of trees around. And I, I remember having really great connection to wherever I was living, like the land where I was living. And you were open as a kid to a lot of different things. Your dad's a therapist, right? Yeah. And your mom was into ralphing? So my dad's a psychoanalyst and psychiatrist. And my mom is a Feldenkrais. That's right. Practitioner and healer and also psychic and also a lot of things. So how (laughs) how did those two things inform your childhood? In so many ways. We could spend a whole whole podcast talking about, but we won't. It was always normal in my family to get really deep into talking about psyche. And it's interesting now to be in conversation with people still. And I'll like 
I'm always ready to go kind of wherever uh, in conversation, like as deep as you want to go. Like, I don't care if it feels like a therapy session, like let's get in there. But I recognize that not everyone was raised in that kind of environment. And it was also really intense. You know, it wasn't always the best. Yeah. And there are definitely drawbacks to it. It was definitely a very interesting situation to grow up in. Yeah. I grew up in the in an opposite situation where nobody was in therapy. Nobody knew yeah. what therapy was. Nobody talked about their feelings. It was only talking about surface level things. Yeah. Which I think is why I'm so attracted to literally what I do is like having deep conversations with yeah. people and recording them. But you got into therapy at a really young age. Was that because of your eating disorder? Were you already in therapy? Well, so one thing I'll say about mm-hmm. every child of a therapist I know has to go to therapy to mm-hmm. deal with the fact they were raised by a therapist. And the way, and I'll just be super honest, and I, I know that, you know, they acknowledge that they were always doing their best. And I acknowledge my, my parents are amazing. They were always doing their best. And you can't therapize your family. Like, yeah. I know they're super talented at helping their patients and their clients. But like with me, when my eating disorder came up, when I was, I first became anorexic when I was like 13, 14 and looking back on it, they were just terrified Yeah, and fumbling and, and had no idea how to handle the situation. So they made me go to therapy, but I was so closed off at that point. I literally never talked about my issues with eating in therapy. And the therapist didn't, wasn't able to get it out of you? Or? I think I actually, looking back, kind of love the way that she approached it. I think she was there as a safe space for me to bring whatever I needed to. Mm-hmm. And since I wasn't clinically at risk for a very long time in terms of, you know, the health of my body, um, in terms of, there were only, there have been a few periods where I was like dangerously underweight, but they weren't that long. Mm-hmm. You know, it's never about the food. Right. So she was a safe space for me to come and talk about the things I was feeling and the things that I was going through. And I do think that that, that helped. So let's get into your eating disorder a little bit. You said you, it started when you were 13. Yeah. So young. What was that time like for you? What do you think helped you shift out of it? I know you kind of went back and forth in it a little bit. Can you mm-hmm. talk about that trajectory? Yeah. I mean, it started right as I basically went into puberty and my body became, started changing and I started getting hips and boobs and I was definitely in an environment where there was a lot of fear around dating and around sex. And I'm still unpacking it. I'm still peeling back layers where I realized I have so much conditioning around sex being dangerous Mm -hmm. on some level. I think a lot of women do. I mean, if we look at what's happened with me too, and like there is a good reason for, for us to be wary. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it is not an inherently dangerous thing. And I think I picked that up. So as soon as my body started going in that direction, I made it do the opposite. Mm -hmm. And I had started getting my period and I lost so much weight that I stopped, like my, all my curves went away, stopped getting my period, like basically reversed puberty. 
Um, which I was not conscious of any of this at the time. Yeah. You know? It was also about like being perfect and being liked and being popular and the magazines and you're a dancer. And I was, I was, yeah, getting more and more into dance. So there's a lot of factors going on, but when I look at that timing, I feel like it's really the puberty thing and the sex thing is like really key to that timing. You said as a kid, you were really in your body and dancing and connected. And now you are, you kind of come back there. Were you during that time connected to your body? Were you, you were dancing still, but was it a way to kind of disconnect from your body? I know for me, my eating disorder put me more in my head and less mm-hmm. in my body. It was about tuning out of my body. 100%. Not listening to the signals of my body. Yeah. It was like numbing it and controlling it. Yeah. And you know what's wild? I had this insight the other day because I went to this really interesting week long workshop around all of this stuff. And I remembered that when I was learning about boundaries and I just, rem- I just remember my mom teaching me that when she, when she was teaching me the lesson of like, you are in charge of who gets to do what with you. Mm-hmm. And this is when I'm like little, little, like, I can't remember what the context was. I just remember her saying the words, I am the boss of my body. Mm. And she meant it as an empowering thing. She meant it as like, this is mine. You know, I make the decisions and nobody else gets to make those decisions. But what happened with that was, it was like, I'm the boss of this body. I'm going to control it. Yeah as opposed to this body is genius and it can tell me what it wants and I can always trust it. And, and I remember being 14 and, and being in that classic anorexia mindset of literally all I thought about all day was calories Mm -hmm. and how many I'd burned and how many I'd eaten. And it's It's wild. Yeah. It's totally a mental illness. It's like, it's crazy. Do you think you, she was a Feldenkrais? Can you, I remember you telling me what yeah. it was last time. Do you think that was kind of her using her model? Because it sounds like she was probably pretty connected to her body. What was her relationship to her body like? She is, you know, it's so interesting how we get on these paths. Mm-hmm. Like this, I know that my relationship, my journey has been to get back to my body. Yeah. And I think it's been somewhat similar for her. She was on a diet my whole life, always sort of yo-yoing that classic thing that all Westerners are trained to do basically as a healer. She's super tuned in to the genius of the body and the intelligence of. Will you define Feldenkrais? Because it's a word that I didn't, when you said it, I was like, is that a religion? Right. And I was like, I'm clear. Right. So it was developed by Moshe Feldenkrais. That was his last name. Oh, that's He's right. an Israeli. He was a neuroscientist and judo master and 10 other things. And he created this movement healing modality that accesses the brain and neurochemistry and biology through movement. And cool. it's super super cool. When I was growing up, my mom always saw clients out of our house. And so I would see all these different people coming to see her, like ex pro football players and 
ballerinas and violinists and people who've been in crazy accidents and people who had cerebral palsy is sort of all the full spectrum of people. Yeah. So how did she get into that? I don't know how she found it. She was a uh, modern dancer. Okay. And then she left that and she was a teacher. I don't know how she found it. It's interesting that your mom has this modality that helps her to get back to her body and your life has kind of been in, yeah. in a similar in a similar vein, you have an older sister, right? Yeah. How did all these things affect her? And I know you guys are super close and mm-hmm. you collaborate. And what does she do again? She's a... She's amazing. She's a writer, director, actor, and coach. So cool. Yeah. So did any of this kind of affect her? And did you see her getting back to her body as well? You know, she... We've talked a little bit about our shared experiences around eating disorders and... I think it's something that almost all women go through. I agree. I remember her telling me the story about when she was in high school and how she felt isolated in it. And then some night there was some slumber party with a bunch of her friends and they all ended up sharing these. They were having the exact same experience, but alone. Wow. Yeah. So we've talked about it a bit. She's, I definitely had more serious and more ongoing issues Mm -hmm. and she actually pointed out to me within the last year she was like it was one of those very truthy moments where we were talking about it and she was like yeah you manage your eating disorder really well wow I was like damn you're right you know because it's that mentality even though I don't act on it it's still it's still there and there are there are some schools of thought that say like you never fully heal you know, mm-hmm. once an addict, always an addict kind of thing. Yeah. I do believe that those patterns in the brain can be transformed. And do you feel like you have? Like, where are you with it now? And what, what were the steps that got you back? Or got I, you it's, a, it's a continual process. I will also, I've been exploring a lot around, I think food and sex are super related because it's about appetite. And our culture has such a fucked up relationship to appetite. And yeah. I've even heard our culture called like a bulimic culture. We're all about consumption. Our economy is all about consumption, but we're also supposed to be perfect. So it's this really messed up cycle where we're fed this bizarre way of being that doesn't actually correspond to how we're evolved to be. So I've been, I've been being with the ways that I cut myself off from my own appetite in all the different ways and cut myself off from sensation. And I feel like ultimately it's such a huge gift because I know that this is my life's work is to help people come back to the genius of their cells. Like we're made of universal intelligence, you know, the thing that orbits our planets, the thing that organizes our ecosystem. Like that is what our cells are. That's what we're, we're more bacteria than human as organisms. And yet the state of consciousness that's considered normal in our society is one in which we're almost entirely cut off from one of our five senses almost all the time. And that is our kinesthetic feeling sense. Mm-hmm. Like to be in our head and to be stimulated and doing in the way 
we are, we're almost always just in our head. Yeah. And to drop into our ability to perceive somatic sensation, one of five senses requires a shift in consciousness. So at this point, it's super clear to me that I've got to experience these different ways of being in a body and relating to to having a body so that I could learn how to come back. Mm. Like I went away so that I could learn how to come back so that I could share with others all the ways that we can come back and make it a practice of coming back. Yeah. And I feel like that's, that's so much of what everything is. Like it's all about going away and then coming back. It's about forgetting and then remembering and not so much trying to get to a place where we're healed all the time and we never have a bad day because then we don't appreciate it. Like we're here to experience contrast and the joy of remembering is kind of what life is all about. Like that moment where you're like, Oh my gosh. Oh, right. Yeah. Life is awesome. Oh, I'm awesome. I forgot. Now I remember, but I get to experience it deeply because I'm remembering because I've been away from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you say more about the connection between food and sex? Because I I see that and I think that's fascinating and I want to know more. Yeah. You know, it's not something that I've really tried to articulate publicly or like write about yet. I'm still in a real exploratory phase around it. I've started expanding my work to work with Tantra teachers and I've been collaborating around movement and Tantra. And so just... I'm in this experimental, cool exploration phase and realizing that it's all about creating safe spaces in which we can feel and express and let energy move, whether that's on the dance floor or on the floor of a yoga studio, like moving sexual energy with your mind and beyond. I would say, though, about the connection that... These are both primal evolutionary drives that we are taught to interpret and judge and ultimately use our rational minds to control and to decide what's allowed versus what's not allowed and what's okay versus what's not okay and to judge certain impulses as wrong. And as soon as we do that, we cut ourselves off from a part of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what Jung called the shadow. And that's where like all of our fucked upness happens Mm -hmm. is the things that we alienate, the parts of ourselves that we alienate. So they're super connected. Yeah. Those parts of ourselves that are a shadow or what we, we don't own ends up owning us. That's something Mm -hmm. that someone else who did the podcast said. And I think about that all the time. I'm Mm -hmm. like, if we don't integrate these aspects that we're embarrassed of or ashamed of. We all have light and dark. Mm -hmm. We all have all this within us, but what we don't integrate owns us subconscious. And that's why people have these, like these sexual impulses that are like really, really bad or society deems bad or like are bad, but it's because they've been repressed or insane things with food. Like it's the exact same thing. It's dieting. Like when you sit on your hands and try to use like as little as possible, like we've both done, then there's ultimately a binge or there's ultimately other things that happen that mm-hmm. it, your body will have this response where it needs more food or it needs something else. It's, it's getting back to being less in your head and more 
in your body, mm-hmm. which makes me think of, I remember what in the basement tapes, the <laughs> deleted episode, that really was the part that I remember just like I had so many watershed moments and I don't exactly even remember what they were, but I think I was asking you about, you know, for me being someone who is so in my head and disconnected from my body, how did you come back? So let's kind of get, take this a little bit back to the thread of your story of, Mm -hmm. you have this, you grew up with these parents who are pretty tapped in working through their stuff. And then when you hit puberty, you have this eating disorder somehow you end up at NYU and you're dancing and you get into art and you have this experience where you're able to, you know, make art and do different, all these different things that you're doing now kind of lead you back to your body. What was that? What was that pathway to kind of get you Mm. to where you are now? And how does, it seems like it's super connected to your relationship with your body and food and your self like you become more yourself through your work can you talk about that yeah well what's so it's so funny to look back and see the threads you know and to see Mm -hmm. to see how it's like learning these lessons over and over on deeper and deeper levels my thesis in college because I was in an interdisciplinary self-created program so we basically had to have a, a dissertation to prove even though it was undergrad it was called the embodied self cool is that Gallatin? The, yeah. 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 It was the best. So in college, I had a rock bottom, a couple rock bottoms, actually. And the first one was I had been a pre-professional dancer till I was 17. And that's when I decided to kind of, okay, take the route of going to dance school and being becoming a professional dancer and potentially retiring by 29 and then teaching or, or whatever. And I, I recognized that that's not the life that I wanted and that the deeper I got into the dance world, the less happy I was. Mm-hmm. So I chose academia and I stopped dancing and I got into a really heady space and was studying critical theory and complet and gender studies and totally nerding out, like having a good time, but all in my head. And I was addicted to Adderall and I was just like kind of, and I would pull all-nighters in the library, drinking tons of coffee, taking lots of Adderall, smoking cigarettes, just on this sort of high, this cerebral high. And that all came crashing down in this massive health crisis that I had that involved a lot of different systems in my body not working as they had been but the most intense one was that my face broke out with insane cystic acne like the worst you could imagine everything covered in like painful and it was like my body was screaming Mm -hmm. for help yeah and I couldn't ignore it this is on my face. And this was, this was also, it happened in conjunction with a really intense relationship that I had where everything kind of blew up and made me realize that the way I had been doing life was not working. And I was completely brought to my knees and I had to go the Western medicine route just to deal with the skin stuff so that I wouldn't be scarred because it was, it was kind of this emergency situation of either 
you kind of don't have a life or you take really intense Western medical drugs. So I did that, but the, all the doctors and dermatologists were like, we're never going to figure out what happened. Your skin has nothing to do with what you eat or what's happening inside of your body. It's not connected to any of the things, the other things and issues you've been experiencing. And I was like, you're, that's not true. (laughs) I disagree. And it's fine that you think that, but I'm going to go investigate this for myself. And so I did. And that's when I got into holistic healing and I became a Reiki master and started studying nutrition and just delved into what is this thing that I'm living in that just totally went haywire and how do I get back into balance? And I recognized that I had to change the whole way I was approaching life and the way that I was approaching consciousness. And at that time, I also had the books be here now and conversations with God come into my life. And I became, my family was really into city yoga growing up. So we went to an ashram a lot. I grew up in this sort of really interesting Kundalini meditation tradition. And we also went to church and all sorts of things. And then was really agnostic for, for a long time and, and came back to spirituality through that whole process in these books. And then I found because of be here now, I got interested in psychedelics and those changed my life. And within, within a year of that rock bottom moment where everything fell apart and my body fell apart and I was like, I got to change everything exactly a year later. I was tripping on mushrooms and dancing in the middle of the desert at Burning Man. I remember <laughs> about Burning Man too. Um, yeah. Let's get into that. So yeah. it was kind of serendipitous how you even ended up there. And then what was that first experience like and how did it change you? And maybe define what Burning Man is like for people listening. Yeah. So it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful turn of events just to see how, when you change your mind, your life changes as well. So after everything blew up, I basically just got new friends and followed my interests and followed my, the doors that were opening and the things that I was learning about. And that led me to meet some new friends who were game changers. And uh, I got a new best friend who was amazing. And she was dating her upstairs neighbor who was a finance guy and he was a burner and he decided that he wanted to invite her to Burning Man. He was like, but you need to bring a buddy because I don't want to sort of babysit you the whole time. And so she was like, all right, Tasha's coming. And I was like, yes. (laughs) So Burning Man is an incredible gathering of about 70,000 people that happens once a year in the desert in Nevada. And it's a temporary autonomous zone for one week of the year. It's the third largest city in Nevada next to Reno and Las Vegas. And basically I could have a, be missing a couple things, but the things that the Burning Man organization actually provides are they do the whole layout of the city and they decide where different camps are going to go. They provide porta potties and that whole situation. They provide a medical center, multiple medical centers. 
rangers to keep everyone safe. And there's center camp where they sell coffee and ice. There's a couple like other infrastructural things that keep everything working, but all of the content, all of the programming, all of the art is brought by participants and all the sound systems, all the DJs, you know, everything is, it's, it's not like some big company got together and it's like, we're going to host this festival and you're going to come be entertained. It's like, let's all get together and make something beautiful. That's beyond our wildest dreams. And let's see, let's see if there's another way that we can be humans or let's explore how many different ways we can be human. And it's interesting because speaking of psychedelics, that year was when I was, I was really, that was the most I was using them and really enjoyed them. And, and I took them every day at Burning Man and every, every night that we went out and I'd be like, Oh my God, I'm tripping so hard. I thought I was tripping so hard. And then the last night we went out and, and waited and we went out sober and I looked around and I was like, Oh, it's just like this. <laughs> like, like it just is burning man has the potential, I think, to do to your brain, what psychedelics do and what other things do, which is to sort of loosen or dismantle the structures that we have assembled that construct our idea of who we are. So all of the habitual ideas we have about what it means to be us, they keep us in boxes, get loosened because what governs our daily lives gets loosened and our ideas of what's possible get, get loosened. And dance can do that too. Like it's all, yeah. <laughs> I want to talk, oh, there's so many things I want to talk about, but I want to talk more about your experience in psychedelics because I've been thinking about them so much lately from a therapeutic standpoint and someone who is so, has so much anxiety, has so much living in my headness, mm-hmm. has so much control. I Have you heard of, read Michael Palm's new book about... I just finished it. Yeah. yeah. And just really like destigmatizing psychedelics and using them in this guided therapeutic way. And I, I saw this show last week in this one man show called the mushroom cure. That's kind of about this as well. And so have you had any experiences or can you talk about any experiences that helped you get back into your body or how do you, can you articulate them even? And like, what would you say to someone considering them and in that way? Absolutely. I'll say, I think Michael Pollan's book is a really important book Mm -hmm. that is worth reading for most humans. Yeah. There's, also a lot more to say on the topic but like that book needs to exist in the world yeah um, and, and even listening to him on a couple other podcasts you can yeah. kind of get a gist before even diving into the book of mm-hmm. the, the research and the work yeah. that's out there and there's this organization called maps yeah yeah they're amazing yeah yeah and and i think michael Pollan does a really good job of explaining and illustrating how ridiculous it is that psychedelics are classified in the way that they are because and why that happened yeah really yeah like why they're illegal like they actually are not harmful to your health in generally yeah and there's um, drug a lot of drugs that are are legal yeah that are really harmful to yeah you. yeah and they're super powerful like they act on the the mind and in, in a way that 
no other substance does. And my experience of them, the first really intense, it was really my first trip that I had is still to this day, the most intense mushroom trip I definitely ever had. And I felt for the first part of it, I remember sitting there saying out loud to the guy I was dating at the time, I feel like I'm going through 10 years of psychoanalysis right now mm-hmm. in 10 minutes. Wow. I don't even remember what that felt like, but, and I hadn't been in psychoanalysis yet. Like I had never done intensive therapy, but it felt like those were the words that came out of my mouth. And then afterwards, it was this incredible feeling of like what was happening in that moment when I felt like I was going through all that psychoanalysis was that all of these ideas of who Natasha is were getting dismantled. You know, the, the anorexic Natasha, the NYU student, the girl who hates herself, the girl who's depressed. I realized that the me that I had been living in, that I thought was true, that I thought was my world, was just one idea, was just one possibility, one possible story. And suddenly it was like I zoomed out and I could see that little life that I had been living Mm -hmm. until that point, that until that point had been everything. And I could see it as just this tiny little possibility and feel all of the other possibilities. And I felt so, I mean, I guess expanded is a word you could use. It seems silly. It seems like really small. It seems like a small word to use for the the actual feeling. But I remember we, we were in my apartment and we went up to the roof. It was nighttime and I looked at the stars and I could, it was a visceral feeling of having very recently come from out there. Oh, wow. And not in an alien way, not in a heaven way, but like I could feel that I was connected to something so much bigger and that I had just been dropped into this physical vehicle recently, like relatively speaking. Well, without recently. all the Velcro that you picked up yeah. since being born. Yeah. Like in the, in the long run, like the 19 years I'd been alive at that point was like barely the blip. Yeah. In that perspective that I was occupying. I was like, wow, cool. Like I'm here. And how great is this? And I I also, I remember because I was in, I was in real recovery at that point. I was in group therapy for eating disorders and in treatment for it. And so it really creeped back up. So it was bad when you were 13 and then you got to college and it was, it got better through high school and then it really ramped up again in, in college. Yeah. Yeah. The, Lowest points were 14, 19, and 22. So it really went up and down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I was carrying around this box of saltines. And I had this moment I was standing on the roof holding me saltines. And I put one on my mouth. And I was totally neutral to it. I was enjoying it. But I didn't care. Like, I didn't... I wasn't worried. I wasn't thinking about what it was going to do to my body. I wasn't worried about eating too many. I wasn't attached to needing to eat more. It was like this total sense of freedom. Wow. And I actually 
later went back to my eating disorder treatment group and I was like, you guys, <laughs> I figured it out. I was like, I did mushrooms and I highly recommend it. <laughs> and that's not to say that it cured me by any means. Like I said, like I had another. Yeah, what happened point. next? Did that stick around? And then like after the trip was over, you feel this oneness, you feel this connection, you feel this peace around food, at least in that moment. Yeah. When the trip is over, mm-hmm. does that kill you for a while? What hap- does it do you have a relapse at 22? What what happened next? It was not anything extreme either way. I would say that psychedelics are incredible for opening, as Aldous Huxley said, opening the doors of perception. So it's like if you grew up in Montana and never left Mm -hmm. and people tried to tell you what the ocean was, but this is before the printing press. So like you had, you couldn't even see a picture Mm -hmm. and then you got teleported to the ocean (laughs) and you got to go swimming and then you went back and like, yeah, you couldn't go to the ocean from there again. And you're like, Hmm, how can I, how can I get back out there? But you knew what the ocean was because you had felt it. Yeah. It's kind of like that. So did that stick, did that feeling stick around and what happened when you're 22? It absolutely, it absolutely changed how I perceived reality and it changed the framework of what I thought was possible. And that is why I believe I ended up attracting the circumstances that got me to Burning Man because my perception opened up and I could see opportunities and I could say yes to things. So, I mean, so many things happened. Well then, and and here's the other side of psychedelics. I kept doing them and kept doing them and got so ungrounded that I kind of that in conjunction with graduating from school and having sort of more health issues, I got to the point where I realized I needed to stop doing them or I was going to go, I was going to lose my mind Mm -hmm. a little bit. Because if you have a strong ego, it's great to break it down so that you're not so detached from it. But you also need an ego to navigate the world. Tell me more. Go into that a little. Yeah. Our egos are the things that perceive ourselves. They're what prevent you from walking into traffic. We have them for a reason. Mm -hmm. And they're actually what allow us to, it's like the gift of the illusion of separation that allows us to experience life on earth. And it's like what I was saying before about forgetting and remembering, like our egos give us the ability to forget the magnificence of who we are so that then we get to remember and reconnect and also experience it through a body that feels and has sensation. So you feel like your ego is pretty broken down at that point. And then when you graduated, what happened? Did it come back up again after that? What was that second relapse? And how did you, how did you get through that second, that last one when you were 22? Yeah. I don't know if I would even call it a relapse because it's, it's interesting to see how my body has shifted over the years and like, sometimes corresponded to food, but not always directly. The lowest point happened after I graduated when I was living on a farm in Jamaica. And that was a huge rite of passage for me. It was a really, the first 
especially a few weeks of it were really challenging because I'm a very privileged person. Like I grew up in upper middle-class family. I'm white. I pass for straight. Yeah. I have a female experience and there's definitely a baggage around that and, and difficulties around that. But I did not know what it meant to live in a developing country. I didn't know what it meant to be a minority. And that was my first experience of, of living in a developing country where I was singled out for my skin color mm-hmm. and an environment where it was like, there was one standpipe in town where everyone got their water from. It was very, and of course, Jamaica is a very fertile place. So nobody's hungry. You can pick a fruit off the tree, like you're going to be okay, but it's very raw. And there's a lot of life and there's a lot of death and there's violence and there's beauty and it's all really on the surface. And I was very used to this quite Western puritanical root socialization that I had been living in my whole life. And so it was a huge reality check to be there. And it was like a huge slap in the face and it brought all my stuff up and being in sort of the real world for the first time, having just graduated the school system and not really knowing what I was doing with my life and having done a lot of psychedelics the previous two years, it was very destabilizing. Mm -hmm. And I had a bit like of a breakdown when I was there. And the woman who was running the farm that I was working on was this badass Jamaican woman who sat me down and basically said, I know you're hurting and you look like a privileged white girl running down the street, tripping over her high heels and crying. And it's time to get it together. Wow. And you could leave, you could go back home and it might be more comfortable, but that's not going to solve your problems. And it was the most come to Jesus conversation I've ever had. It was like, so she was completely right. So what was also happening at that point was, I was living on a farm. In yeah. What brought you there? How long were you there? I was there for three months mm-hmm. and my friend and I went to work together. It was her, her aunt and uncle's farm. It's called the source farm. They're an amazing eco village cool. in Jamaica. I think there's only like two in Jamaica wow. and they're still going. They're like really strong now and they built a lot, but yeah, it was, it was kind of like a, a massive shedding <sighs> moment where I look back at pictures and I'm, there's a lot going on. So I don't even, even know if I would call it a relapse. It was just, it was just observing these different patterns that yeah. come up. Yeah. You know? Today's episode is brought to you in part by a brand that I've been using and loving. And I honestly think you guys will too. It's called Organifi. And they make just a few products, but the products they make, they do really well. And the founder, Drew, is also from Michigan. We've also become friends since he did the podcast. And you know what? I really love these products. He makes green juice powders that are really easy to take on the go. They contain 11 superfoods blended into this 100% organic powder that actually tastes really good and has so many vitamins and minerals and antioxidants in it. It's helped me to knock on wood, not get sick. 
and help me feel really great. They also have a gold powder, which is like a turmeric product I've been having with some macadamia nut milk in the evening. I love their red powder, maybe best. I mix that one into my yogurt. I really enjoy their products, but my favorite is their probiotic. It has been amazing for my personal digestive health. It contains 10 potent strains of probiotics and it's an an easy to take capsule. And I've taken a lot of probiotics, you guys, like a bunch of them. Name a probiotic, I've probably taken it, but this one is probably my favorite. I think you should check it out. If you take probiotics, I think you'd like this one. So check out any of their products, Organifi, that's Organifi with an I-O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com and use the code let it out to receive 20% off your order. That's 20% off and use the code let it out. Thank you, Organifi. Over here at Let It Out, we are on the go and that's why we love Care of Vitamins, one of the reasons. Care-of is a monthly subscription vitamin service made from effective, quality ingredients personally tailored to your exact needs. Here's a big reason why I love them. They have a quiz that you go to their website and take. It's fun. It's online. It asks you questions about your health goals, your lifestyle choices, how often you're going to the bathroom, how much you're sleeping. It takes about five minutes, but it reminds me of the quizzes I would take in like Seventeen Magazine, and I love me a good personality quiz or a health quiz. 90% of people fall short of the FDA's recommended guidelines for at least one vitamin or nutrient. And Care of Squiz can help you identify the vitamins you need to get back on track with feeling your best. I love them. They're delivered right to my door in these easy to remember, very beautiful packaging, personalized containers, these daily packs, and a new thing that they're doing or new to me is that a portion of every sale goes towards the good foundation, which provides expectant mothers in need of valuable prenatal vitamin. They also have a new delicious nutrient-packed quick stick powder that can be added to your monthly delivery for an extra easy boost whenever you need it. Very cool. Again, I love using them. I always toss them in my bags so I can remember to actually take my vitamins during the day. And they're great for travel. And I've actually saved money using Care-of than I would have used buying all the supplements that I needed to take. And here's another update. I have taken the quiz again, and I highly recommend, you know, if you've been on Care-of for a while, take the quiz again and see where you are today because I've completely changed out some of the vitamins that I've been taking over the time that I've been using them. So if you want to try them out for 25% off your first month of personalized Care-of vitamins, visit takecareof.com and enter the code Katie at checkout. That's K-A-T-I-E, my name at checkout. Again, for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, visit takecareof.com and enter the code Katie at checkout. So you got back and let's kind of bring the thread of dance into all this. Mm -hmm. You stopped your track of becoming a professional dancer at 17 and you have this philosophy now of dance that's unique from how a lot of people see it. And I want to get to that eventually, but let's start, you know, 17 and we 
you know, what was going on with dance through all of this? Yeah. So 17, I stopped. And I mean, that thread picks up on that, that first trip to Burning Man and having an incredible experience. There's a few days into it where I was on mushrooms and listening to electronic music for the first time, basically. I was not into it before then. I was really into rock and all sorts of different genres, but never electronic music. I'd never heard of house music before. And suddenly I found myself with this huge array of incredible sound systems with DJs everywhere. And you could just hop from party to party and and see what music was playing where. And I wound up, I don't even know what the music was, but I wound up at some party and started dancing and had this experience where I felt like I had at the same time, both total control over my body and total freedom. And it was the same, it was the same thing. It was two sides of the same coin. And that coin was this connection to every movement that had ever been made in the history of humanity. (laughs) And I was doing moves that as a professional dancer, I'd never learned. It was all, and it was all effortless. And it was like, I had access to this whole well of somatic information that I didn't, hadn't previously been connected to. And it was just flowing. And I wondered if I would, you know, it's like, well, am I just on drugs? I just feel cool because I'm on drugs. And then I looked around and people were watching and people were like gathering around and watching. And I was like, no, there, this is happening. This is actually happening. And other people can see it. And I am tapping into something that's real. And I realized that that whole time that I had been on the professional, pre-professional dance track and very much considering myself a dancer and identifying as a dancer and wanting to make my life about dance while not being very happy in that environment with the the leotards and the tights and the fluorescent lights and the mirrors and all the choreography and all of that. Like I never really loved those parts of it, but I felt like a dancer. And I realized in that moment, I was like, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. And I had never felt so happy. And it brought me back. I hadn't felt so happy since I was a little kid, Mm -hmm. you know, climbing on rocks and doing ballet on the dining room table. And it was that night, you know, walking back across the playa to my camp and feeling this huge magnitude of what I just experienced that I realized I need to figure out how to access that whenever I want without substances like that was real. Like I just was in the ocean and I want to figure out how to get there every day. I want to go to the ocean every day. (laughs) So how did you do that when you got back from Burning Man and how have you done that since? So it took me a while. When I first got back, it was, I started going to Burning Man parties. I started going to clubs and then through all of that, I found the practice of five rhythms, which an incredible teacher named Gabriel Roth created in the seventies and developed over decades and the five rhythms dance floor, which is it's barefoot. It's no talking it's sober. And it's a beautiful practice that I recommend for everyone that became my laboratory. So I went very deep into the study of the five rhythms as a practice and also 
utilize the space that they hold as a free form dance practice to just explore how to let my body take over mm-hmm. and how to let myself be danced by my body. And the five rhythms is, is a kind of map into that consciousness wherein the mind can relax and the body can take over. And it's just been this amazing unfolding path of the last 10 years. So what else happened in those, those last 10 years? You eventually were teaching dance and then you eventually became a DJ. What did you do when you got back from Jamaica kind of up to the present? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, a lot, but. Yeah. I graduated from college and I had a degree in critical theory in consciousness studies And I was like, what the fuck do I do with that? So I had gotten really into healing because of my health crisis and and learning so much about that. And I went to the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. So I was like, that is a job that people do that I could do and sounds reasonable. And being, having been raised by healers who were in that sort of one-on-one client model, I was like, that makes sense. And So I went down that path and also worked as a Reiki practitioner and it just became clear, clearer and clearer to the point where I couldn't ignore it anymore that I needed to make my life about dance. And it was, it was like this voice that was coming from inside me and then was also became echoed by the people around me who were like, dude, what are you doing? Why are you not pursuing this thing that you're obviously needing to pursue? So I did the only thing I could think of to do at the time, which was to start throwing a dance party. And the first one that I did was at Brooklyn Bowl when it first opened as a venue. And it's for those who don't live in Brooklyn, it's this crazy, huge venue that is a bowling alley and a music venue and a bar and a restaurant. And the owner, who is so kind, was like, do you want to do a dance thing before we open in the morning on a Saturday? Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. So the first one was 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning in the middle of a snowstorm oh my gosh. in December. And I think 10 people came mm-hmm. and we danced for two hours. And it was like kind of weird, but a thing. I was like, okay. So I did a thing. And went back to the venue. Was like, could I? What do we think about doing it in the afternoon? I think that would be easier, an easier sell for people. And could we make it free? And then we started. I think, I think it was weekly. And once it was in the afternoon and it was free, people started coming. And yes, there were people bowling at the same time, and there were families with their kids eating, and there were people at the bar drinking, but there was also people there dancing who were there to dance. And then once I had like a thing and people, I went to Yoga Works, which had just opened in Soho. It was a beautiful, beautiful studio, two floors, three huge studios. And I was like, hey, you guys just opened. You need people to know about your studio. I have a party that I do. Could I do it here? And maybe you give everyone a free class card so they can come back and it's a promotion for you. And they agreed. And 
I did it there for a while for free. And then eventually they started charging me for the space. But it was this interesting way of like learning how to figure out how to partner mm-hmm. with different people and how to find alliances and provide value in that way. And it it really was a, a very organic process the whole time of, of trying to figure out how to make a party that people in New York would want to come to. Because in this city, there's a million options. You can always be doing something mm-hmm. else. Yeah. Everyone's distracted. Everyone's busy. So to create something that's really worth people's time and energy and money, it's got to be amazing. And so it was really hard for a long time. And I, I lost money. I was babysitting. I was waitressing. I was making nothing. And it was really frustrating because <laughs> I was really hard on myself. But it was a beautiful learning curve. And I, I figured out what worked and how to build community and... And then ultimately I learned that the business model I was using was never going to work and that I needed to take a break and learn how to DJ so that I could stop hiring other DJs that I wished would just play different music, the music that I thought they should play. And I I realized I shouldn't be telling them what to play and that I should just learn to do it myself. And I started a class a weekly class where I would partner with the yoga teacher. I would do all the music. They'd do yoga. Then we would dance. Then they would do yoga again. And that's kind of where I was my DJ boot camp. And I got to just experiment and see how the music was moving people's bodies, what it was like to be on that side of the decks and also just to practice. And once I gained momentum with that, I went to an incredible venue in Manhattan called Cielo, which is one of the longest running clubs in the city. And it's like, hey, so your parties don't start till 10 p.m., right? How about I do one at seven? (laughs) And they gave me a good deal and I started doing it. And again, from there, like it was a very organic feel it out process. Like I started as a monthly and was charging at the door and it was cute but it never was gaining momentum. And so ultimately I just made it free. I was like, whatever, I don't care. I just want to make something good. And I want to bring people together and I want us to dance. And I know that I'm here. That's what I'm here to do. And I just want to do it. (laughs) So it was free until I think 7.30 and then like five bucks after that. So to incentivize people to come early. And then as more and more came, then it was five bucks and 10 bucks after 7.30. And then eventually it became more of a standard party price when the demand was there, but we still have five and $10 tickets that sell out like two hours, but they're still there. You know, if you're really on it, you can get them. So what is it's called the get down now yes. and what is it now and how can people find out about it? Yeah. So if you follow me on social media, on Instagram, I post about it. It's also, thegetdownnyc.com and the Get Down Party on Instagram. And it's every other Thursday in New York, rotating venues, Brooklyn, Manhattan. Depending on the venue, we get between usually 250 and 400, maybe 400 people. Sorry, 10 people. I know, yeah, yeah. And it's amazing. It's It's gone so far beyond what, I dreamed it could be, you know, I, I always had this vision of 
people having a transformative ecstatic experience on the dance floor. And I always saw a giant room of people all bouncing to the same beat. And I get to watch that happen every other week now, like really happens. And they go, they teach me things. They wow me every time. Like I can't even describe what happens on this dance floor. It's wild. It's like being in the matrix. I still want to come <laughs> so much and I definitely want to come, but this is a good transition to my next question, which I think I asked you about last time. What would you say to someone like me who is a non-dancer, mm-hmm. very disconnected from my body, definitely in my head. So many therapists have told me you're really in your head. You need to be back in your body, trying to get back in my body. Mm-hmm. What would you say to me in terms of the get down and just generally? I would say in terms of the get down, in terms of the get down, you're a dancer. Just come. You have a body. You have ears. They go together. It's such a sad belief that most Western humans have of I'm not a dancer. If you can walk, you can dance. And even if you can't walk, you can dance. There's people who've come to the get down in wheelchairs regularly. Like I get, we have regulars who come in wheelchairs because our, our nervous systems, the first There was a study done by the National Institute of Sciences on 120 babies from all over the world, all different cultures, who they played different music, different genres of music for. And the moms had soundproof headphones on, so they weren't moving. They couldn't hear the music. And the different babies from different cultures responded to different sounds in different ways. But universally, all 120 of them danced, responded rhythmically to house music. Wow. Which is 120 beats per minute, which is roughly the rate of the heart when you're dancing. And it's the drum. It's like this primal driving rhythm. And it's our first mode of expression is movement. Wow. And yeah. And you move all day. Like everything is dance, everything. And it's just the idea that you're not a dancer. is just an idea. Yeah. And also uh, at the get down, how do I say it? Everything I've done around creating dance spaces for people, I do knowing full well what most people's relationship to dance and to having a body is, which is largely influenced by fear and disconnection. And it's like, We know, like, I know how hard it is. I know how hard it is to get back. So I've, over the years, learned how to put all these different things in place that create an environment that invite a feeling of safety and comfort and ability to relax into the rhythm and into the beat and into yourself. And a lot of times, especially... If I'm, let's say, facilitating a more ecstatic dance floor class with a more intimate group and it's new people who aren't used to it, I almost feel like kind of like a mama, like, hi, like, I love you. I know how you feel. And we're all in this together. And I've got you. Like, I've so got you and you're so safe here. And it's totally okay to feel like you don't know what you're doing and to, to go through the awkwardness of letting your body be free enough to remember how to feel and to remember how to respond to rhythm. Cause it does know. It's just that we've got all these ideas 
blocking that communication and that connection. So it's like slowly shedding these layers of ideas about ourselves and these layers of disconnection and letting our body do what it does. Yeah. Is that what, that kind of holding space and safety, what you do online in your workshop? Yeah, that's definitely how I felt when I was creating it. I created my digital course, Radical Movement 101, which I love so much. I created it thinking very specifically about different people in my life. You know, it wasn't just for anonymous, like, I'm just going to make this and hope somebody likes it. Like, I thought about people in my life who I really wanted to support and made it with them in mind. People who are going through stuff that I know is really universal and that I connected to. And it's kind of all the things I've learned over the last 10 years around, not just around dancing, but around dealing with the psyche and dealing with emotions. Because I did ultimately go into really intensive therapy for about 10 years and did that at the same time as dance and realized that there's no one thing that's going to heal anyone. Talk therapy isn't enough. Dancing isn't enough. Acupuncture isn't enough. But you combine them all and you engage with this existence from multiple angles and start to get this holistic shedding. It's cool. It's So it sounds like, and I want to hear more about it, you've collaged everything you've taught yourself over mm-hmm. these 10 years. So how... How has it helped you? Who can it help? Anyone who's willing. It's so exciting to get feedback about it and to see the people who are in it posting their dance videos and and messaging me on social media and telling me about their experiences. And it's a systematic 12-month program. And I, I designed it intentionally because I know that real sustainable transformation, like that takes time. And it's not an overnight thing. And it's I think a lot of people are looking for like, well, what's going to fix me in 30 days? And first of all, it's not going to fix you, but it will give you the tools to support your evolution. And I would say it's, it's for people who feel any amount of stuckness around anything because the genius of existence and of life and of that intelligence that orbits the planets and that operates our bodies, like that's all movement. Everything is always moving. And that is the thing that's consistent to all of it. And that's what allows it to stay in dynamic equilibrium. And the only thing that creates, that interferes with that is, in our systems at least, is our ideas, which are the only things that can stay fixed. So crazy, Uh, literally. Um, (laughs) So the process that I developed is around accessing those blockages and those areas of stagnation from all the angles. So working with it through movement, working with it through self-work and examining where ideas come from. And then there's assignments around relating to those blockages. And it's a full, it's really cool. I mean, we should, we should put in the the show notes or something, the the 12 modules, because it's that, I spent so much time just designing the order of them. Like how does transformation really work and how do we approach this in a systematic way? And it's so much fun. I'm so excited. I want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. 
Okay, let's get to some questions I ask everyone. So kind of quick fire things. What's your greatest lesson on creativity? My greatest lesson on creativity is that it's what we are. It's what we are. And there's no, just like some of us make the mistake of thinking we're not dancers. So many of us make the mistake of thinking we're not artists. Yeah. It's yeah. A, when you said that about dance, yeah. like I say that about journaling. Like yeah. if you can talk, you can journal. Yes. If you can write a text, you can journal. Yeah. It's like what you say about you can walk, you can dance. Yeah. And it's, it's what we are. Like we are creators. Every moment is a creation. We're creating this life. We're creating our thoughts. We're creating our ideas of who we are. We're creating our relationships. And to think that anything is less than creativity is to take away our power and to imagine that we're powerless. And it's the most empowering thing to realize how much we are the creators of our lives. Speaking of creativity, you have these beautiful tattoos, and we talked about them last time. <laughs> you started doing pen drawings. Can you talk about that? Yeah. yeah. I Did I have this part last time? Yeah, it's so beautiful. Yeah. I think it would just gotten it that day. It was like healing. Oh, or like wild. Great, yeah, great yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this tattoo has evolved over, over years, but the part of it that's my drawing, because I was... At the same time that I was on the dance track, I was also a super serious visual artist and yeah. painting. We kind of glossed over that this time. Yeah. I would uh, get out of school early to go to my dance program, dance for three hours, and then I would go paint to painting class for three hours, and then I'd go home and do homework. It was crazy. Wow. I had no social life. Yeah. And when I chose, I mean, it was really like, yeah, when I moved into healing and chose the dancing path and chose music, I kind of recognized that I needed to focus on something in order to do anything and that I had to put certain things on the back burner. And painting is a lot of time. It's a lot of energy. It's a whole setup. It's a lot of space. But my hands needed to make things that were visual. So I'm noticing a, a theme in my life is like, well, okay, what can I do now? Like, what is step one? What's the step I know I can take, even if I don't know what the outcome is going to be. And I knew that I, I found a kind of sketchbook that I really liked. Finally, like I like the way the cover is. I like the way the pages are, I like the size. I found a pen, a brand of pen that I really like to use to draw. And I started doing these pen drawings on the subway when I was commuting. And over time, developed like sort of a language, a visual language, abstract language, and would make these sort of notes of, of the downloads I was getting through like the lessons I was learning, the things that I would run off the dance floor in like a moment of insight on the dance floor, I'd run off, scribble it in my notebook next mm -hmm. to a drawing. And they've developed over the years, I started taking pictures of them and then printing using an Instagram filter to give it some color and then printing them and giving it to people as gifts. And then recently I transitioned into, I finally got an iPad and started drawing them digitally so that they can be properly printed and with colors and everything. And now I'm making a deck. Cool. Yeah. Oh, that's going to be so yeah. cool. Yeah. And that's they, so, cool. so there are these abstract drawings with phrases on them. Oh, that, wow. Yeah, people love, love to pull them as sort of reminder yeah. cards, inspirational cards. Yeah, so cool. Best thing you've eaten in the last week? Oh, yes. So 
I went to my friend Daniela Platner's Five Rhythms class the other night. And afterwards, we were at the assemblage and and somebody had ordered sweet potato fries. And there were these big sweet potato fries with this crazy sauce. And the guy who, who had ordered them was like, who wants one? And I was like, I would like one bite that you feed me. <laughs> and it was just the best bite. It was so delicious. And I just sweat and danced so hard. And it was like beautiful to just be fed by a human and just enjoy it fully in that moment. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Now I want sweet potato fries. <laughs> we always talk about body image. And I know we had a great discussion on this last time I don't know what you said but I loved it where are you with it now you've kind of been all over mm-hmm. what is your greatest lesson on you know I usually frame this question as when you're having a bad body image moment mm-hmm. how do you shift from that and not let it hold you back or become a bad body image day or week yeah I mean this is a huge discussion the thing that I've been really feeling into recently is how such a big discussion as white women we have privilege like we have an amount of power that not everyone has as white western women like we can do a lot and the fact that we live in a society that's programmed us to hate ourselves is just another kind of prison and so we're like willingly living in these mental prisons of not good enough and holding ourselves back in all of these ways. And I've come up against it a lot as a DJ because number one, most DJs are men and the few female DJs, there's this whole concept of like the model DJ, you know, there's sort of a decoration. And I know I'm not that. And there's been a lot of times where I thought I was supposed to be that. And that that if I was going to make it, you know, that I had to be that. And then this sort of feeling of never, like, I'm never going to be good enough, which I recognize is completely Mm -hmm. not true and not what it's about. And that the most powerful thing I can possibly do and the most beautiful thing I can possibly do is say fuck you to that whole way of thinking and recognize that that's, that nobody cares. Like, no one cares. And the people who do care, like, fuck them or that sucks for them that they're trapped in that system too. And the most generous thing I can possibly do is be in fully in the body that I'm in now and be a powerful woman in a position of leadership and be an example for all people who come to the things I do and like the things that I do to be like, this is for you too. And so to recognize that it's not just about, like, it's not about the thing we think it's about. It's not about if we're good enough. It's about taking back our power and realizing that that whole system is a lie. (laughs) And the only way to undo it is to undo it and, and choose differently. Yeah. Cool. We talked about last time you mentioned Kyle Cease. And hearing the difference between the logical head and how that sounds different Mm -hmm. from the heart and how that's impacted you. Can you explain that again if you still remember? Yeah, I love Kyle Cease. He's so great. 
he says he has a lot of great stuff about about that whole head versus heart thing. A couple of the uh, key points are one is you know it's the mind and the head talking when it's thinking ten steps ahead, when it's thinking in outcomes, when it's thinking in results and strategy, and you know it's the heart where you can only see one step ahead, and it's a feeling in your body other than fear. Fear is what comes up after the initial impulse for that first step. And the process, like it's, it's such a great practice and process of learning how to trust it. It's like you only get good at trusting it and get good at following your heart by risking taking the first step or the next step over and over and over. And then over and over and over seeing how the one after that shows up and that actually there's not a cliff edge that you're walking off of, even though it feels like that because it's unknown. It's a practice of trust and of that you just learn by experiencing. I love that so much. Yeah. Because I can tell when I'm so many steps ahead. Yeah. I do that so often. I'm addicted, much like with eating disorder, so many things. I'm addicted to planning. I turn to that as a coping mechanism or trying to control. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the ego getting out of control, right? Like Mm -hmm. these egos can really help us and they can also really go on overdrive because they're so bored. Like we're so comfortable. We have so many things done for us and taken care of for us in terms of our basic survival needs that like our egos are like, all right, give me something to do. Like, Mm -hmm. let me come up with a problem so I can solve it. That's what they do. They, They identify and solve problems. So if there's not a real problem to solve, they're like, they get busy finding them. And she's like anxiety, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'm just useless. Mm-hmm. And that's why meditation is so important because it's that mental training of letting go. But I think what you said about control is really important because it goes back to trusting the body, trusting nature, trusting life. Like life has been doing this for 14 billion years. Our egos get so blown out of proportion thinking that they're in control of anything. There's we're so little. We're so we're just these tiny blips and we think that every move we make and every thought we have is so important. It's like no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it is but it's not that important. Yeah. Yeah, that like knocks me back in right now. I feel like I just I'm always so in my head and like I have to be it's like what you said at the beginning like getting knocked off and coming back. Coming back. You know, it's hard to stay outside of the ego impossible to, to stay outside of the ego permanently because like you said we need it yeah but it's that ego imbalance yeah that i think i'm in and yeah and having it be an ally mm-hmm. like an ally of our soul to help us have an amazing to give the soul yeah, the full that. experience of life as opposed to to being the dictator yeah yeah of our lives Put it in the back seat, not the front seat of yeah. your life. Yeah. yeah. Greatest lesson on romantic relationships. <laughs> um, there's so many. There's so many. I would say that one that I can easily say is that love doesn't dictate or mean any kind of relationship structure. So those two things are different and we can feel love for anyone and everyone and then 
from there, we can make a decision about what kind of structure we want to create. It can come from a place of choice as opposed to, I love you. And that means that therefore we are going to date for a certain period of time. And then we are going to commit to being monogamous. And then we're going to move in together. And then we're going to get engaged. And then we're going to get married. And then we're going to have children. And not that there's anything wrong with any of that. If that works for you, awesome. And for a lot of people, it does. And there's also so much more. And there's such a spectrum of love from platonic to romantic to everything in between. And I feel like we're in a time where a lot of our assumptions about what's normal and what's to be expected are getting kind of blown up by what we're seeing in the relationships around us. Like in the 50s, television was introduced into homes and that was the first time that we got to watch sitcoms and that was the first time that everyone got a unified idea of what was a normal family dynamic and then there was this idea that there's a normal family dynamic and then that blew up in the 60s and then you know gen x and gen y watched most of their parents get divorced and so everyone's kind of in a period of questioning i think and questioning these assumptions and I feel like we're in a time where we it's it's a little scary because there are no guarantees, but it's also a beautiful opportunity to recognize where we've made assumptions about what we're supposed to do or what we're supposed to feel or what's right or what's wrong and actually tune in and make a choice based on what we feel in our body. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I remember you giving a really good relationship nugget last time too and I don't think it was that Uh which is so funny if I ever find this if it ever like miraculously is uncovered yeah I will release it and it'll be funny to see if any of the overlap answers do you remember what you got from it or like what feeling it gave you I just remember asking a lot of these same questions and some of the things I remember you telling me again but a lot of the other ones, you said something equally as great, but I think it was different. Mm-hmm. And it's just funny to have had this conversation twice. Mm-hmm. And it was so great the first time and so great this time, but so different. Yeah. Totally. It was way different. Yeah. You know? So different. Yeah. I feel so different. Yeah. Then that was what? That was. Two months ago? Something yeah. Like that. I feel, I actually, yeah, I have a lot. I mean, I've. The last two months has been the the most like heart opening period I've been in a long time. And I realized, yeah, I realized like ways that I was really still protecting myself and protecting my heart. And yeah, I've learned so much. It's like, how do I even verbalize it? One thing I've been getting better at is getting okay with the idea of people not liking me Mm -hmm. and getting okay with the idea of doing things that trigger discomfort or anger or whatever in other people. And I think that I was, I was really afraid of that for a long time. And that ultimately blocks intimacy and it ultimately blocks truth and it blocks our hearts. And like the more okay we can get with pissing other people off, actually the more loving we can be because the more open we can be, the more ourselves we can be, you know? Yeah. I'm just drinking that in. <laughs> Greatest lesson on spirituality, God, what do you think happens when we die? All of that. Oh, I definitely think we go back where we came from. And 
That's such a big question. I do feel like the more life I live and the more explorations I do and the more lessons I learn, the more I remember that love is the only thing that matters. And most of the things a lot of us think matter don't. Likes don't matter. Followers don't matter. Money matters in as much as like you need it to eat and have a place to sleep and like basic things. But all that really matters is love. Mm -hmm. And this year I'm not going to Burning Man. I'm going to the beach with my sister and my brother-in-law and my niece. Because that's the most loving choice. And it's really easy to get distracted by shiny things and by things we think will like lead us to happiness, but nothing can lead us to happiness anywhere outside of ourselves. And the only place to find it is right here, right now. Like it's, it's how many times have we heard that? Like, it's really true and everything else is extra. And the good news is that like, if you feel it inside, then the outside will ultimately reflect that. But yeah, that was a big, a big learning I had in the last few months. Cause I got so, I got super sucked into work and into creation and into projects. And I recognized that I was blocking my heart from other people and not creating time for the people who mean the most. And then I just started going back to like, ultimately, what am I going to care about when I'm on my deathbed? Like, what are the moments that I'm going to remember. And it's going to be the times where I was feeling love and giving love and connecting yeah. with people yeah. and being present. Mm. Okay. Before we do our final breath together, <laughs> sounds ominous, but this is, <laughs> this is really a way for you to just recommend things. So these can be current favorites or, all-time favorite, but like your desert island book, movie, TV show, podcast, music, that can Mm -hmm. be things you've liked lately or just a way to recommend things Mm -hmm. in those sort of categories. So book, music, TV show, you don't even have to give all of them. Yeah. I just reread Amanda Palmer's The Art of Asking, which is so beautiful. Speaking of love, love and creativity and connection and abundance, the way that she relates to community and relates to how people can support each other, I think is so beautiful and revolutionary and is such an inspiration to me. And I've watched your TED talk, but I I need to read the book is amazing. It's so well-written and ties is like hands down. Cool. Read it. Yeah. Music. Oh man. I mean, just you go, playlist, to, right? go to my SoundCloud, yeah. soundcloud.com slash Tasha Blank. There, there you will find the music I like. <laughs> Movie, TV show. I'm not the best about watching things. All time favorite. Wait, what did I just watch that I just recommend? Oh, there's a, a series on Netflix called Rapture, mm. which is a docu-series on it follows, I think, eight hip-hop artists, different one each episode. And it's so well done. And it goes, it similarly, like, it explores 
their artistic process. It explores the ins and outs of the culture. It goes, it looks at really new upcoming up and coming artists. And then also people who've been in the game for 20, 30 years and it all super rich. Well done show. Cool. Movie podcast, food, anything else you want to recommend? Did I bring you dry? The show's called let it out. So anything that you wish that I would have asked or that you mm-hmm. want to talk about or recommend anything? The thing I've been thinking about the most recently, this goes back to the love thing mm-hmm. and where we go when we die Great and spirituality. It feels to me like we are living in a vast sea of infinite love. <laughs> it's like the words are coming out of my mouth. And I'm like, mm, this sounds real woo. But it's something that I'm feeling more and more the more I tap into it. And it's like our heart is an aperture. And we adjust it to be smaller or bigger. And that determines how much we can let out and in. Mm-hmm. And the amount that you can give is the amount that you can receive and vice versa. Like it's just one aperture. And what we give and receive is the capacity of that really is just, it's about the aperture. It's not about how much love there is. It's about how much we're allowing. There's enough. It's everywhere. And the question is just, are we perceiving it or are we cutting off from it? You are so smart and (laughs) and creative and cool. And I'm so happy that I got to talk to you twice and that this is recorded. This one definitely is recorded. (laughs) And I get to listen to this again. So thank Mm. you so much for doing this. My pleasure. I'm so glad we got to that last point. That's the one that's been like, really resonating recently because I can so get into that heady space too. And I can so get into strategizing and trying and trying to control and worrying whether I'm going to get the outcomes that I want and like do the things in the world that I want to do. And it's like, it's all there. Can I receive it? Can I let life be good? Can I let myself have it? That's the line. Can I let life be good? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So we end this with a let it out, inhale, and then let out a sigh together. So are you ready? Yes. Okay. (sighs) That feels better. (laughs) We did it again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so, so much. Thanks for having me. Well, I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I haven't stopped thinking about it. I really learned a lot and I would love to discuss it with you guys. Maybe we could talk about it in the listener Facebook group if you guys are there. And if you'd like to be there, the link's in the show notes. Let me know. Give me your feedback. I would love to hear what you have to say. And if this at all resonated with you, do Tasha's course. It's called Radical Movement. It's really, really cool. At least watch the video on the page for the course, which the link to that is in the show notes. So watch that video. I think you'll really enjoy it. Use the link in the show notes and just follow her. Support everything she does because I really like her and she had to put up with doing my podcast twice, (laughs) only to air one of the episodes. But I hope you enjoy this. I hope to see many of you tonight in New York and on Friday in D.C. 
and Akurpalu for New Year's. Is it New Year's with an S or New Year? New Year, no, it's not New Year Eve, New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve. Okay, I'm recording this intro very late at night. I hope you guys have a great week and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.